On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Emily, and Emily was married to a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a story of covert grandiosity, abuse escalation phases, power plays, and not knowing how to get out. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad. And thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. Now, before we get to our episode with Emily, I just first want to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, a reminder, if you have not left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., etc., please leave us a five-star written review as it helps out the show a lot when it comes to rankings. Now, if you have not been to our website recently, please do go there if you want to be part of our show. Go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Click on that Guest Form, fill out the Guest Form, and we'll go from there. Also, if you want to be part of our show but don't want to be a guest on our show and want to read a letter to your narcissist, you can be part of our Letters to My Narcissist compilation episode. One just debuted uh, the other day. We had uh, Volume 5. But for Volume 6, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. On the side of the page, there's a button there that says Send Voicemail. Press that button. Records up to five minutes. If you need more than five minutes, press it twice. And if you don't want to read the letter yourself, send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Me or my old pal Melissa will read it for you. And please put in the subject line letters to my narcissist. Other things going on at our site. We have high-conflict parenting courses that can be found at NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. Yes, we have partnered with an online parenting company. And many of the courses we are offering were created by Bill Eddy. And if you listened to our episode last year with a divorce lawyer named Helen... You'll know that Bill Eddy is an expert in dealing with these individuals in court, and now he's helped create many parenting courses to help you through divorce and to help support your children too. These courses are the most widely recognized courses by family courts across the country, so if you want to support the show and are looking for guidance, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. And what else do we have for you? Well, you can join our Patreon if you want to support the show. Yes, we have a Patreon. If you want to hear episodes that never made it to air, follow up episodes with former guests, other things on our Patreon. We now have virtual support groups every Wednesday and Saturday night. We are running support groups. we got a great group of people on there. I want to say hi to everyone who is part of our Patreon, who supports the show that way. And on our support groups, we had a great time on Saturday. A lot of helping went on. And, you know, I can't say enough about uh, how that's turned out. It's wonderful. And thank you for everyone who's participating in that. And now, before we get to 
our show. I just want to say that you know, this episode, we do talk about physical abuse. There's a lot of physical abuse towards the end of uh, this episode. It's a really interesting story because the way it starts, uh, you have no idea how, uh, like kind of how they even got to where they were at the end because it's really, it's all done in these phases. And it's really kind of interesting to hear, you know, each phase things shifted and got worse. So it's, it's really hard to imagine from, uh, for, from Emily's perspective that what was going on at the beginning seemed really minor. And then, you know, at every one of these phases, things, you know, got worse. But that's all I'll say. Uh, you know, Emily does a really great job. Her metaphors are amazing. And, you know, towards the end, she's really talking about her healing process and, and everything, how she's feeling. It's a great episode. Uh, thank you to Emily for being part of this and, uh, you know, bringing like like you know this was a long edit you know we recorded for a long time but uh thank you to emily for for being part of everything from the bottom of my heart and now uh everyone i'm rambling i hope uh you enjoy this episode i'm getting out of my way and your way here is my episode with emily welcome to narcissist apocalypse everyone with me today i have emily how are you I am good. How are you? I am doing well. It is uh, what is it today? I, I don't even know what the days are anymore because I'm in I'm in a lockdown here. But I think it's uh, yeah. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't. <laughs> things things just happen. But we're it's a weekend day, you know. And I'm that was really Canadian of me right there. That you know, um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Emily, thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing uh, your story. And the floor is now yours. Perfect. Well, thank you for the chance to do it. Um, I think what you're doing is very important just to start off with. And um, I was born in the Midwest in, um, in the U.S. And surrounded by corn, so that gives you any mental picture. <laughs> uh, pretty go with the flow kind of childhood, um, sports and fun. And when I was 16, uh, my dad, things had kind of been a little rough, and he had a little bit of an issue with prescription drugs. So when I was 16, I was the last one at home. My two older sisters had, you know, gotten older and moved out of the house. And things really amped up that year, and it got pretty bad. Um, he couldn't really hide it anymore. I think he was juggling so much with just financial struggles and work, and he was working with kind of a toxic coworker, um, and he just really couldn't hide it. And so at that point, my mom and I and some family had gotten pretty concerned. And, I mean, I was 16. It wasn't like I was spearheading it or anything. But we did have an intervention for him. And that's probably the first intense situation I had ever been in. Um, we did like a little practice run. And then, I mean, it's, it's, if you've ever seen the TV show Intervention, like it, it was pretty much similar to that, where we had letters that we read to him. Um, it was his college roommate and some family members and my grandma, his mom, me. My mom, I, I can't really remember everyone that was there, but I would say it was probably eight people or so, maybe 10. And when we got to our house after doing our little practice run with the counselor, 
who was kind of, you know, running it. We walked in and my dad was sitting in the room with like a sweatsuit on and a hoodie. And he just, he looked so small and just, I don't know. I mean, he would always sit on the floor and listen to music with headphones and he just looked lost. And when I went through the letter with the group, I was fine. But when I had to look at my dad and read my letter, I cried the whole time. (laughs) I was a wreck. And I I didn't expect that because I'd honestly become kind of numb towards him. I really didn't like him anymore because life was so difficult, Um, just me and my mom. And he was really kind of not around at all. He was at the office all the time. And when he was home, you know, he would say he was going to come to something at school and then he wouldn't come. And I just didn't really, I didn't really know him anymore. And I realized I'd kind of seen behind the curtain and it was just difficult. And so the the letter that we were prompted to write was to tell him all the things we liked about him and the things that we had noticed that we no longer liked. And when I, I, it was my turn, I said, dad, I don't remember anything that I like. And I know that I used to, and I know you used to make me cinnamon sugar toast and I would pretend to be sick so I could stay home with you and not go to church Sunday night and you'd make me that and you would hang out and listen to music and you taught me about comedy and but but we haven't done any of those things in years you know and thankfully he did go and get help and he and I actually have a great relationship now we talk all the time uh he's one of my good friends I think he's very very funny and he's been sober since 1996. Sorry is it fair to say that you you know you say you're people pleaser that it's hard for you to uh, you feel a lot of guilt um you know telling someone that what's kind of going on is wrong or you don't like their behavior I don't now okay but, but at <laughs> that time to. at that at that time yes okay def- all right definitely yes. all right so that we, yes. so for everyone listening you know right here before we're getting into the relationship part we already have one little thing that is obviously going to uh, play into uh, the relationship. Um, I'm assuming. Am I correct? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And because I'm sh- I just... Sorry, continue. I like people to be happy. I like people around me. You know, I try to do what I can to accommodate. And, I mean, I've always been drawn to assistant work. I like other people. I like to be the one, you know, behind the scenes, making sure everything runs smoothly. And that comes to relationships too. I just, I was proud of my sister for being so good at her sport, but I didn't care that I wasn't. It's just not my, I don't need the spotlight. So I, I'm kind of drawn to people who want the spotlight in a way and who are it's not that I'm not the life of the party. Cause I have my moments where I like to make jokes and have a good time, but and I gravitated in high school to only children because I wasn't. And then I would just go with the flow and they seemed to like that because <laughs> they could kind of call the shots and I was okay. You know? So, so your, your, yeah, your, was- your childhood happened and then I guess yeah. we're going to, we're going to, we're going to skip to, uh, your, your meeting. Yeah. Real quick. One point that's okay. kind of important is that, I had never had a boyfriend except one time in my freshman year of high school, and that was, you know, maybe a month or something, and I don't even think we kissed. I think we held hands on a hayride. You know, it was very juvenile. Um, But I decided a week after the intervention, when a boy told me he liked me, that we should start dating. 
which obviously as an adult, that's a terrible idea. I was <laughs> probably more raw and damaged at that time, you know, than I had ever been. And he was just the first person to kind of show some interest and we ended up together way too long. And that trying to set me up a little bit for some of the things that I was okay with in a relationship, just settling a little bit for less than I deserved. And here and there, there'd be little bits of dishonesty. Um, definitely not to the level that my abusive marriage was, but I was young and I stayed too long because I was just not sure what else I could do. And I didn't want to cause problems for anyone else. And uh, also within that time, did you have any beliefs such as, um, you know, relationships take work or? Uh, definitely, definitely. Especially with, um, you know, my church upbringing, it's, um, you know, we are t- we're told that you date to marry and. You get married I mean, I and you stick it out. Now. Yeah. yeah. Like this is you know, God will bring you the right person and you can make it work and blah, 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 and whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, I kind of had that mentality of this can work if you put in the effort. But the thing that they don't say is that both people have to put in the effort for it to work. One person cannot let the other person (laughs) out of whatever is happening. And thank you for bringing up that point. It's a really, that's something that, uh, I guess should be, uh, said I, when you're younger, you know, cause everyone's stuck on that thing, you know, relationships take work, but that one thing's not in there is like, what if the other person isn't doing work that should actually be part of that whole entire conversation that everyone has always told. Right. Uh, it's just, it's a simple well, just knowing, thing. Just knowing your value outside of that person is so important. And that's why when you date, when you're young, I mean, I truthfully wish I hadn't dated at all in high school and just had fun with my friends. Because it's just such a fun time, if you let it be. And he made it a lot of not fun (laughs) that I could have had. I mean, there were times I should have been with my best friends instead of trying to figure out if we were going to maybe hang out together and waiting by the phone and just not really knowing. And I wish I could get those hours back and those moments of stress and things that just didn't need to really be a part of my life at that stage, you know. And then I dated him into college just because. And then as soon as he started college, because he was a year below me, we broke up. Guess what? Because he went to college and he wanted to date. <laughs> so it's like, it's kind of funny. Um, I don't have any, you know, feeling towards it now at all, but I do wish that we'd broken up after about 20 minutes instead <laughs> of four years. <laughs> so, we live and learn, right? Yes. Hopefully. Yes. So for everyone yep. who's uh, listening, uh, you know, it's not with everyone because sometimes people don't go into these types of relationships with uh, certain issues. But here we have a lot of little things uh, playing against you going in that can be uh, fed upon um, or use it to break down your uh, boundaries. And in some ways you didn't have boundaries going in. You just didn't really know it yet. And now um, right. we're going to... Uh, start off here with, I guess, you know, stage uh, one of these relationships when it's, you know, the meeting and, and the love bombing and everything yep. uh, good uh, before it gets bad. Buckle, so. buckle in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I didn't meet him until I was 28. So I had had quite a few years on my own uh, living in Los Angeles and making friends. I'd been there for four years uh, when we met. 
So I was, you know, I had a good job and I was on my own living by myself with my dog. So I, I had a life going. And um, the night that we met, it always bothered me how he would tell the story. Because, you know, people are like, oh, how'd you guys meet? Came up a lot, right? When you meet new people. And we moved quite a few times. And so every time you meet new people. And he always made me sound pathetic and lonely the night that we met. And it bothered me just because, you know, let me set the scene. We were at, uh, we were not there together, obviously. We met at a bar, which sounds terrible, I guess. It's just cliche. But my friend was the bartender. And I had gone to a play. And my friend was going to meet me there. But she couldn't come last minute. She wasn't feeling well. And I almost went home, but I was like, well, I mean, I already told, you know, my friend who's working tonight that I was going to come, and I know everybody that works there. Um, it's kind of like a little local haunt, you know, that we would go to on Fridays and Saturdays and do group events and stuff there. And so I went anyway, alone, which literally the only time I've done that. And I was kind of sitting there at the bar and talking to random people who would come up, and my friend was very busy because they were packed. So I guess every time X came up, which I call him X, just for the record, uh, I looked like I wasn't talking to anyone, but I really was. Um, and so he, you know, would come up and get, I guess, drinks for his group. And one of the times up there, you know, he's an outgoing person. And so he just talked to me and I talked back and he started chatting and he told me he was new to Los Angeles, but living, you know, like an hour and a half away, but hoping to move in and wanted to be a director. Um, he asked if he could, have my number and I said yeah sure you know and I, I had a lot of guy friends I didn't really think much of it to be honest because um a lot of people I was working in the industry and you know a lot of people it could have just been schmoozing to be honest I didn't know what the intention was and I wasn't really concerned about it and uh, I offered I was like yeah you know if you want to um if you want me to show you around or something like I've, I've lived here four years I spent the first four months completely by myself figuring out the city and I, I like music and all sorts of things. So if you want just kind of, you know, to piggyback and I can, I can show you around, it's going to be better than any Hollywood tour you're going to pay for. So, and he was kind of laughing about that. And he had texted me, I, I think, you know, when we said goodnight or whatever, um, and used a different name. And so I remember being, I, I said, so wait, you said your name was this. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm changing my name because I want to be a director and I really don't like my last name. And that made sense to me, to be honest. It might not make sense, you know, in the middle of the cornfields I grew up in, but in Los Angeles, that is not weird, to be honest. You know, it's, it's kind of, my boss did that. Uh, he has a completely different name than anyone would know him as because it's just, you kind of want the best name that sounds the best and is going to look the best in the, the credits of a movie, right? So it didn't really, that wasn't a red flag to me. Um, but now when I look back, I think that also had a double meaning for him of trying to kind of stay under the radar or avoid, you know, potential creditors or things like that. But it did not, it did not register to me as something bad. I mean, it was like a blip, you know, and he, I was supportive, you know, when he was telling me he wanted to be uh, a director because, you know, obviously a lot of people out there, even if they're a waiter, you know, they have aspirations and dreams, and that's great. I mean, it makes the world go round. But he thought he could do it instantly. You know, I mean, I remember I was driving him around, showing him around, and he's like, you know, you'll see. And in a year, I'm going to be getting, you know, an Oscar, and you'll see. I'm like, okay. I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, 
that is not very realistic. Like that is, you know, one out of how many people's stories, just because it takes a lot of years, a lot of knowing people and a lot of work to get to that point for most people. Um, but you know, he didn't, the first week we hung out, he didn't seem to have like a romantic push and I was fine with that. Uh, he told me he was super impressed by like my independence, living on my own and just, you know, the things he liked what I did for work because I worked with celebrities at that time and he thought that was cool. I did not really like talking about it just because people out there, I'm not into name dropping at all. I pretend, you know, I prefer not to talk about it at all because <laughs> it just, it's kind of awkward and I don't like to bring attention to it. Um, but he in the future loved to name drop on my behalf, which was annoying. Um, but within a couple of weeks, he kind of said, well, what do you think about, you know, if we date? And I said, um, yeah, let me, I mean, okay, we can talk about that. <laughs> and so I think it was that night that he, you know, my standards were fairly low. I, I dated a couple people in LA, but dating in LA is very difficult. And guys would lie about their age. The maturity level was not, you know, I felt like guys that were 40 acted 30 or 20 and they just, they don't have to grow up. They kind of just keep doing the same thing just because of what they do. And, you know, one day a guy I dated had left me at a bar with the tab and like literally left and I had no way home. <laughs> so my standards were a little low. And so when he, you know, asked if he could kiss me, I was like, wow, that's so old fashioned and sweet. I had not had anyone be that respectful in a very long time. You know, I was actually very impressed, um, which I guess was probably his point. Uh, he, he said he loved me within a couple of months and we, you know, we hung out off and on. I had a pretty active social life. I went to concerts two or three times a week. I had a lot of friends in bands. And so, you know, we, we did a lot of things. So I wasn't, we weren't inseparable. You know, some of the stories I hear, they instantly want to be your everything. It wasn't like that. So it was definitely, you know, one of my counselors called it, you know, he had you on a slow boil, like the frog that won't jump out of the pot or whatever they talk about, <laughs> because it really wasn't shockingly quick. It wasn't shockingly intense. So the I love you thing was kind of intense just because most guys, you know, I'd, I'd seen one guy for over a year and he'd never said he loved me and he'd never even called himself my boyfriend. So this was kind of a big switch in that area, but also it was much more aligned to how I grew up and wanting a serious relationship and marriage and babies in the future. And so it seemed like a good thing, you know? So at this, at this point, you know, it, you're getting this slow boil and yep. uh, is everything he's saying uh, the correct thing uh, was it stuff that you mentioned, and then he's going along with it. You know, is he mirroring that kind of stuff? Is he promising, or you know, he's saying that he wants the exact same future as you? Is this how he's going about the trust building uh, in this kind of uh, section of your story? Definitely. Um, it, you know, at the beginning, he would make he he did graphic design, and he would make homemade cards for me every month for our anniversary. And I mean, you know, when you're an adult, you don't really celebrate your monthly anniversary when you're dating. I don't think, I mean, but he did. And that seemed, I mean, pretty nice, pretty over the top, but not in a bad way to me at that time. Um, I will say that there were a couple of red flags at this time in that 
you know, there was one time when we were just, I was giving him a tour and I think I was telling him some, you know, just some silly little story about shipping something. And he, in the middle of me talking, he said, boring. <laughs> and I was like, uh, it kind of took me back. Like, what? That's so rude. <laughs> I mean, okay. It wasn't the best story ever, but it, I was just talking. Like we were just having a conversation. It wasn't, I don't know that it, it rubbed me the wrong way. And I think that's, you know, my conscience saying, what? Um, and then when we did start dating, he told me very early on that he didn't like, he didn't ever want me to apologize on his behalf, which seemed like a really weird thing to say. Like, does that come up a lot? <laughs> do I need, you know, do I need to be prepared to not apologize for you a lot? And he said, well, you know, I have a very sarcastic sense of humor. Sometimes, you know, waiters or waitresses won't get me. And I don't want you to ever say sorry or explain for me. I was like, okay, I'll try to remember that. And then um, one more thing that when you put them all together, it makes a lot of sense. But when they're spread out and when you're not, (laughs) you know, writing things down and thinking about them deeply, it doesn't really register, I guess. But he said that if we were ever holding hands, and then we were like, you know, standing up, like walking and holding hands, his hand needed to be in front. And I said, okay, I'll, why? And he said, well, I don't want you to be dragging me around. You know, I'm the guy. And it just seems so specific and kind of chauvinistic. Like we're literally just adults holding hands. Like, I don't think anyone would ever think, I don't even look at people's hands and go, oh, whose hands on top? You know, like that's, I mean, have you ever done that? No, I've never thought about that in my life ever. No. And so I became really hyper aware of that. And like, I would have to kind of be like, oh, okay. And like, switch my hand, you know? I mean, it's just something that you kind of grab your significant other's hand without thinking about it. And then here I have to think about it every time. And then he trained me. So, yeah. So here you are in the love bombing, trust building stage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there are red flags, but these aren't red flags in the sense of, you know, as I, as we found out, you know, if people listen to the the Vienna episode, the the big thing in in that one to me was she said something about uh, patterns. So in these ones, I mean, there's no way to establish a pattern here at all until later on in the Mm -hmm. relationship. And that's why, you know, it's, uh, there's no shame or guilt for, for, missing any red flags because most of the time or all the time it's really in hindsight where we're like ah the red flags are there but we you know we have zero uh, ability to see them because we have no idea and well i think that's so important for other people listening who have not been in this kind of relationship but might know someone who has is that you know i had people say well why would you marry him it's like okay had i known all these things and put them all together the way that i am now when I'm retelling it all in one big story, you you know, he didn't slap me across the face on our first date. Like, no, you know, this is not willingness to be abused that happened. This was someone thinking the best of their partner, wanting to love them and have a future. That's really what it is, you know? And I, another question about uh, trust building, was he a Christian uh, man? Okay, so this is kind of complicated, okay. and I get into it a little bit later. If you want to talk about it later, or we can talk about it now. 
<laughs> um, <laughs> does it? Well, I might. My, well, this, I'll, I'll just ask the question that I was going to ask, which is: yeah. Did he pretend or pretend to be uh, very into being a Christian person and Christian beliefs because you were, and that uh, was really a big hook, line, and sinker for you? That was going to be my question. Okay, so his situation is interesting in that he left a religion, a pretty intense religion, and we won't name it, but because of that, you know, he explained his lack of history because in this particular, um, you know, church group, if you leave, you're kind of ostracized. Yeah, you're like they're not really okay. supposed to talk to you. Yeah, yeah you're not really supposed to... So it made sense to me, and I, I just thought it was so sad because even with family, there were some strained relationships because it was a fourth-generation religion in their family. So it meant turning your back on this tradition, basically saying, I hate you, and, you know, without saying it, by choosing a different path. And so I had a lot of sympathy for him for that because, that, I mean, I can't imagine losing everything and everyone you've known and you've spent your entire life with but he made that choice because he didn't agree with some of the aspects of the religion. And I don't know what really happened there. I probably never will know. And that's fine. Uh, I'm sure there was a lot more to the other side of the story about what led him to leave. And I know that he had been in trouble before, you know, within the religion and taken a pause, but never left. And then he formally left and was not allowed back. So because of that, we talked about religion on our first date. We talked about faith. We talked about, I mean, we talked about spiritual stuff all the time. So it definitely was something he was well-versed in, which I was comfortable with because I grew up, you know, going Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and I was on the Bible quiz team. And I went to, you know, I was, I went to Christian college. Like I knew my stuff and he knew his stuff. And I found that to be interesting because I, I like to have conversations about those things, you know? So he wasn't, he wasn't wanting to go to church, which I did go to church. He didn't go with me at all in Los Angeles. He would go later, but he definitely did have a religious base. But the knowledge of everything and talking about spirituality, uh, you being able to have those conversations was a hook. Uh, what was, yeah. I guess, you know, in this time period, like the moment where you were like hook, line, and sinker, you know, the love bombing had done its job and the trauma bond uh, was now in place. I mean, I guess when he said he loved me and he wanted to, he would always say, you know, I just see so much potential in you, which, you know, later was used against me. But at that time, I was like, well, nobody has really said that to me. I mean, I've always been a behind the scenes kind of person. And so it felt like he really wanted to challenge me and kind of, see what I was capable of in a way that, you know, like I said, my older sister was really good at our sport that we did together. And I wasn't that great. I was fine with it, but I was kind of in her shadow, not by her doing, but just by her talent. And so, you know, people are like, Oh, are you so-and-so's sister? And so it felt good to kind of just be my own person. And I liked that, you know, it, it made me feel, I can do stuff, you know, <laughs> like I knew I was capable, but it just felt good to hear that which is the complete opposite of how the future went as far as him telling me I was, you know, a piece of crap and could do nothing right. So it's interesting the switch that happens. 
So you were um, being seen in a way you hadn't been seen before, and he was instilling this confidence in you that you didn't have to be a bit player in another person's movie anymore. You deserved your own starring role, and in his life, you were going to have a starring role, and he was going to help you. Um, I mean, I think he, you know, he was very big on leading and that mentality, you know, the, the kind of old school Christian mentality of like the man is the head of the house and that kind of mentality. So I don't know that he wanted me to be the star, but he at least thought that I could be on the stage. Okay. All right. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. So yeah, I will say the first big fight we had was really difficult for me because I am not a conflict person. I, I won't say I'm an avoider because I do communicate, but definitely would just kind of get over things and stuff them <laughs> when I was growing up. And I don't do that now, but we went to Vegas to visit friends of mine and we had this huge fight and it's literally ridiculous. We went to dinner. Um, we had seen some, you know, special restaurant on like a food network special that was known for this giant chocolate cake. I mean, it had like 14 layers or something insane. So we'd been at a play and I don't think it got out until like nine or nine thirty. So by the time we get over to the dinner, I'm starving and I ate way too much bread <laughs> waiting for dinner. And then I ate my entree. And by the time he ordered the cake, I could not take a bite. I mean, I was so full and I told him, I said, I, I don't think I can. And he was furious, but we came here for the cake. And I'm like, are you serious right now? I said, why don't we box it up and we can eat it tomorrow? And I'll enjoy it better because right now I feel like I could vomit if I take a bite of that cake. And I really want, I want to taste the same as cake. So we get back to the hotel. He's not talking to me at all. And we're supposed to see my friends the next day. We hadn't seen them yet. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like what the heck is going on? We have to take a taxi, you know, back to the hotel. And he yells at me for hours. I could not tell you what he said, but he thought that I just was trying to be difficult. And I said, honey, I'm full. I mean, it was kind of a no means no situation, you know, not in a, any sort of physical way, but just, I mean, don't force me cake. Like, I don't, force feed me some cake. I'm full, and I would like to have it tomorrow, and that should really be the end of the conversation in an adult interaction, shouldn't it? And he wouldn't let it go. He ended up leaving the room, and I was like, is this what's happening? And I had what I know now is a panic attack because he was so angry. And I was scared. I did not know what was happening. I was so confused. It made no sense to me. And so he eventually came back to the room and just went to sleep, didn't say a thing. And we had like two queen beds. So he was in the other bed and just went to sleep. And then we got up in the morning and went to see my friend and he acted normal. And that was kind of the start of like the eggshells, right? Mm -hmm. Just that did not seem like something that should be that big of a deal. So that so that was like the first <laughs> incident that you had mm -hmm. and so how far into your relationship was that? I mean, I would say at least a year probably. Okay. So that was like the first so, real devaluation mm -hmm. or like narcissistic type uh behavior that you had seen. Um Definitely. And, I mean, yeah. 
yeah. Did, did that so that threw you for a, a loop? What were you kind of thinking I, I, in this in this stage right here? Are you like, is this the real guy? Like, what are you like? I'll let it slide. What's kind of going on in your mind about how you're going to deal with this? I mean, because he moved forward and didn't want to talk about it, I kind of just let it go, mm-hmm. and I don't think we ever talked about it again. Which, in you know, in hindsight, I'm like. I wish that I had because that kind of set me up for just taking whatever would upset him. I just needed to listen until he got it off his chest, and then we would move forward the next day. And it's kind of like, you know, you you drive the car into the telephone pole, and then you walk away from the accident, and I'm the one that's dented. (laughs) Just supposed to move forward. Uh, You know, it's it's very damaging because you never get an apology or any sort of ownership for the fact that they've done these things that are so inappropriately driven towards you, you know? Yep. And then, you know, he and my sister, um, she's my best friend, and she lived out there as well. And we had lived together before I got my own place, and they liked each other at first, and then they started to butt heads a lot. Um, But I kind of just dismissed it because she and I were so close that I was like, well, maybe it's just hard because I'm in a relationship now, and I'm, you know, kind of balancing dating plus social life and time with her and whatever and um but at one point they got in a giant fight which could have been avoided if he'd taken my advice but he didn't um and he ended up telling her because he wanted to get the last word in and so he just kept texting back and forth and back and forth which let's be honest the texting fight is never a good idea because you can never understand the tone that's coming across but i think you can understand when he ended with you can't alpha male a male that she just turned off her phone and told me she didn't want anything to do with him. So that was awkward for me because obviously I love them both. And I knew that if we were to end up together, like their paths would cross, hopefully. And I didn't know how I was going to kind of navigate that with both of them being very important to me. So did that isolate you from uh, your sister? Were you, did you, kind of, uh, Definitely. yeah, you, your communication with her became, uh, less or you just didn't divulge much when it came to him. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of just compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. So it was strained a little bit for a while. And I remember I wrote her card and said, you know, I don't need your approval, but I do need your support. And I think that was probably what he had told me to say. I don't remember exactly, but and that sounds like something he would tell me to say. <laughs> and that I was like, Oh, that sounds good. And I just put it in a card and I gave it to her. Um, but he would make really strange requests because I am kind of a rule follower. Like, I just feel like my life has been better when I do what I'm expected to do. And so I don't like, I mean, like I said, I don't really like to make waves if possible. And he went, you know, we'd be at a parking garage or something and it would say no left turn. He's like, turn left. I'm like, I, no, I'm not going to. And he's like, gosh, you never do, you know, the hard thing. And I'm like, okay, but you're not allowed to turn left because there's probably cars coming that direction. Like, why would I do that? And he just, he saw my rule following as a weakness. And I would try to kind of explain myself, but it was just, you know, he just wanted me to rebel and, and push me. And it was, it was just odd. Like, why does that matter? You know, why, why is that something that you want me to do is break the rules? Just not something I'm interested in. I'm not, again, peer pressure. Like I'm not, I'm beyond that. I'm almost 30 years old and I'm comfortable with who I am but he was trying to change it as much as he could. So it kind of came to a head one night when I got 
seven or eight missed calls and I was, I was painting furniture, something random, you know, and we had hung out the night before and he was calling me from jail, which as I've mentioned, I am a rule follower. So instantly I'm like sick to my stomach. I don't know what's happening. And it was just a voicemail. And clearly you cannot call back because it's jail. So I didn't know what was happening when I did finally talk to him because I, I, they left me a number to call and I talked to some woman who was like, Oh honey, she's like, this is Seth. You need to run. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try to figure out what's going on. So when I talked to him, he had a big story prepared and I really believed him. He said he ran a stop sign at a Costco parking lot. And when they ran his license plate, they realized that he had an outstanding warrant because he had gotten two speeding tickets within an hour and he'd forgotten to pay them. And it was this whole like elaborate story that seemed plausible, I guess, for me not knowing much about these sorts of things. And I wouldn't find out for a whole year what had actually happened. So I can either talk about that now or later. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, talk about it <laughs> but, now. Talk about it now. Okay. So just before we were about to celebrate two years, uh, we were planning to move, um, you know, four or five hours away because he had gotten a job with a friend of mine. I had gotten him a job, I should say, uh, to work for a friend of mine. And he, one night, he started to smoke pot a lot which I'm kind of anti-drugs because of my dad, as you can imagine, even mm-hmm. though it was prescription drugs, I just kind of steer clear of anything in that category. Um, just doesn't make me feel great. So when he did that, and I found out later just because of his brain, he became manic and would talk a lot, which from what I know about pot, that is not the typical reaction. Usually it mellows people out. That does not happen with him. And so he would call me late at night and then just talk and talk and talk and talk. And one of those nights, he confessed the truth about the arrest. And he said that he had stolen Blu-rays from Costco and he had put them under, this is before they made you change carts at the checkout. I don't know if you know their system, but they usually, you have to switch all your stuff from one cart to another. And this is before that. And he put them under like cases of water that they would just scan and not lift up. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. And I guess they got him on camera or something and he got arrested and he told me he had done it lots before because it turned out that he was at a Costco down the street. And I was like, well, that's weird. Why are you all the way at my house? And you live 30 minutes that way. And we'd hung out last night. Like it didn't make sense to me when he told me which Costco. And now it makes sense if he was like doing the rounds, right. Going to different locations to try to not get caught. Um, And so, you know, here I am a year before figuring out bail and driving down to the jail at like midnight, you know. And I mean, I was a wreck because it's out of my realm of expertise, you know, just that is not anywhere I had been. I was on a jury once, you know, so that was like my only taste of that at that point. And, And he had never really let me process how I felt about it because he was like, it was so difficult for me. You know, I hated being in there and there were these sketchy people and it was all about his experience. Um, and then now here I get this confession of what it was actually all about. And we didn't really process that either. We'd already signed a lease using my credit because his was not great. And I felt kind of stuck. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Break up with him now when like he's supposed to go and work for my friend's husband. We're moving. I've quit my job to do it remotely. Like, all these things are in place. Like literally the pod is coming tomorrow and I'm packing it up. And here's this like big 
game changer, you know? And he told me he'd also gotten evicted from his first apartment that I had known he lived in when he moved into town. Um, and that he had credit card debt. So he told me all this stuff all at once. And I was incredibly overwhelmed, as you can imagine. I feel like we talked on the phone for like five or six hours. And I really didn't know how I felt after that. And I had to go to work the next day. You know, I had asked him about credit card debt just because, you know, when you're dating someone in your late 20s into your 30s thinking about marriage, it's like, so how's your credit score? You know, it's kind of like <laughs> I'd say that uh, is a big talking point of, you know, how are you with finances and stuff? And he said he didn't have a credit card. Well, he told me later, well, that was because I wasn't using it. I'm like, but you have a credit card. You have debt. That's what I was asking. And he knew that. He just, you know, lie by omission. So I just felt devastated. I felt stuck. I, I wish I'd gotten out then, but I wouldn't have my child. So um, not really worth thinking about it. So during this time, you know, we've gone from the love bombing stage to uh, this stage. And at the beginning of this stage of the devaluation and manipulation tactic stage, he the biggest part right now with whatever he's doing is the lying. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of being like all of the red flags here are all about like him uh, lying. Is there anything else kind of going on as far as, you know, obviously he's had those out the uh, outbursts before. Is he doing that a, a mm-hmm. lot during like this part? Uh, because people are going to find out eventually that you guys do get married. Um you know, sorry, right. so, sorry for ruining the story uh, for everyone, but we're, we're going to get spoiler there. Alert. Spoiler alert! Um, <laughs> and <laughs> we're nerds now. Spoiler alert! Yeah, fine. I'm, I'm totally fine with it. And so, yeah. is there any, um, before that happens, um, you know, because more stuff will happen mm-hmm. after that. But spoiler alert! Um, the <laughs> is there is there uh other kind of uh manipulation tactics kind of going on during this little phase right here not that i can recall okay. there were subtle things you know he would get annoyed he would get annoyed about stupid stuff which i was just kind of like it seemed like he had no filter and i didn't really understand that because I, I remember in the future telling him like you know most people run kind of their thoughts through a filter and they they weigh the consequences of saying the thing and if it's a big deal you know bring it up. If it's not a big deal, eh, fine. Or if it's going to hurt someone's feelings, I probably am not going to say that. I said, you always say it. You always, you always said it. It didn't matter what it was. If it was, you know, to his mom, to his dad, to his whoever, he said it. It didn't matter what their reaction might be. He would never keep it in. It just wasn't. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And, and, and as far as, as your behavior goes, are you conforming your behavior in any way during this uh, period right here so there aren't any blow-ups or anything like that? Are you doing things just... Definitely. The- I mean, we did not live together, okay. so it didn't come up a ton. You know what I mean? Because you can kind of fake it for a date night or whatever. Mm-hmm. You can kind of have a good dinner and go to a movie, which is what our typical was. You didn't even really have to talk that you, much, right? No, no so talking when you go to the a movie. Lot Exactly. Um, And so there wasn't a lot of that at that time, which is why, you know, when we moved, it really wasn't for another year that I saw how he was day to day. Because when we moved together, I was working nonstop. I I worked remotely for my boss. So I had like a set income with that. And then I was nannying for three different families because um, just to make a very long story short, he got fired from that job. After three months, because he told the boss, my 
friend's husband to shut up in the middle of a meeting, (laughs) which I don't know if you know this, but when you have a boss, this is frowned upon. You can't really tell them to shut up in front of other people you work with. And so he was like, oh, and working for himself again. And I found out pretty quickly that that meant very inconsistent pay because his work ethic was terrible. But I didn't really know that. I just knew he didn't ever have money. But I was working so much that I was not home to see what his days looked like. You know what I'm saying? So I just knew that I was expected to kind of pay the rent and the bills. Um, If I ever asked him about money, he would get furious and say, you know, I don't need to tell you what I'm doing. Um, He did tell me that he hadn't paid his taxes, but he didn't really ever make that much. They didn't really care. And he was going to get it cleaned up. He was going to figure it out. But I always filed, you know, on my own for that reason. Thank God. (laughs) Um, And then he asked me one time, you know, on a walk to tell me more about my mom and like her childhood. And I think he left it pretty open-ended, just like, I want to hear more about your mom. And so I start talking and he basically was like, no, not like that. And like told me what I should be saying. I'm like, you can't ask me about my mom and then say it's wrong. That doesn't make any sense. That's not, you know, like there's a script I don't have and I didn't answer properly. It doesn't have a response that it's supposed to have. It was very confusing for me. Um, And I kind of just stopped sharing because it didn't seem to go well. And at this time, I think he started smoking a lot more because I wasn't home. He really didn't have, you know, he didn't have to go into the office anymore. And he didn't have to, um, you know, living in California, there's dispensaries and stuff like that. And he started to get really into conspiracy theories. And like third eye and lucid dreaming. And he was just very um, kind of new agey all of a sudden, which I wasn't super comfortable with and I didn't know much about. So it was, you know, and, and little things about paying for things came up. Um, when I first met him, you know, he whined and dined me, not, not excessively, but like normal. You know, he would pay for dates and he'd pay for the movie and fill up my car with gas here and there. Or, you know, it wasn't, uh, oh, can we go Dutch, you know, on our first date or anything like that. So... When I turned 30, we went out of town for a couple of days and it came time to like check out of the hotel and he turned to me to pay. Like, you got it, you know? And I was just like, seriously? It's my birthday. Like, what? I had found the hotel. I found, you know, what we were doing, but I didn't think that meant I had to pay for my own party in a way. It just was kind of awkward, you know? And, and I felt like I had done the work when it came to faith. Like I said, we talked about it a lot. Um, when we were dating and getting more serious, we took his Bible, which he still, you know, he has left the religion, but he still held some of their beliefs pretty tightly. And I understood that because if you grow up in something, you know, even if you're not necessarily going, you might use those as like foundations, right. For how you want to live. Kind of ironic since he did not do anything (laughs) by the book at all, but we, it had like a glossary, you know, alphabetical, checklist of kind of like concepts and, and, you know, beliefs. And we went through that. Like we spent hours talking about our differences and kind of discussing how we might choose to handle them in the future and with kids and things like that. Like I really felt we tried to talk it through and have kind of a, a place to jump off of together, like a new normal as a family, if we were to become a family and he'd go to church with me there. He didn't go in LA, but once we moved, he would go and he'd meet people and, you always kind of find a problem with the church and we'd move on. 
but people thought he was funny and interesting. And, you know, when he'd get on these tirades about random subjects, a lot of people were taken in by it. He could be really charismatic. And I remember we went camping with friends of ours and their friend, (laughs) she was like, oh my gosh, I want you to be my pastor. Like you are so funny and you're so smart. And I mean, that was not rare that people would kind of drink his Kool-Aid in a way. (laughs) Um, And I would get frustrated because I didn't change my faith. Like I, I had moments in adulthood where I didn't go to church every week, mainly because I had to go alone in LA and that just, you know, sometimes it was hard to motivate, especially if I'd been out later the night before or something. And so I just, you know, took a little sabbatical from it for a while, but I always went back and I never shifted in what I believed. Um, I, I kind of shifted away from some of the black and white things that I had been taught and kind of, you know, threw a little more grace into those areas. But overall, it was the same. And he seemed to fluctuate on these extremes of hating the religion he grew up in, but still, you know, touting so much of what they believed. And so it was hard to keep up at times, like, do we hate this or do we not hate this? And I didn't know how I was supposed to respond. Um, And so when we, I mean, this is, again, jumping forward just for a quick second, but a couple months after we got married, we went on a walk and he was like, do you want to switch to that religion? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, I was shocked at the question. To me, it was like someone saying, oh, um, I, I definitely want kids. And then getting married and being like, just kidding, I don't. Like, it was a huge issue that we had debated and talked through. And he knew where I stood. We, we had never going, gone to that kind of church together. And it was such a difference from what I believed. And he also constantly talked about how much he hated it and how it ruined him. So it was just shocking and strange to me that he would even think that it was okay to ask me that, you know, it was very strange. And I felt like I was waiting for him to commit. You know, we'd almost been together. Bless you. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) That's okay. Things happen. You all right? You got another one or just one? I'm so sorry. Continue. (laughs) Oh, you're good. Um, So I I felt like I was trying to get him to commit, even though, you know, we'd never broken up in that time. There had never been like a moment where we weren't together. But he had told me, you know, that he'd been engaged before and they'd gotten engaged in three months. And he kind of blamed that on, you know, within the religion, like, especially if you have another person within the same religion, like they want you to kind of get married quickly. So build the church and, but it still felt like, well, why were you so quick to commit? And here I am, you know, unwavering for three years. And you're like, eh, I don't know. You know, it just felt kind of, uh, kind of crappy on this side of things. Like I had to, I had to sell myself to him and I didn't really understand that. And, um, he had the ring that he'd given to that girl and it was years ago, you know, years before this. And it was, it was very, um, it was not a nice ring. It was very, it wasn't a diamond. It wasn't, and I'm not a a jewelry person, but it was a really cheap ring. And he asked me if I wanted it. (laughs) I said, no. So so what happened when, uh, he asked you to marry him? Was it out of the blue? Um, were you, It was out of, mm-hmm. Okay, continue. Sorry. It was out of the blue. Yep. No, it was out of the blue. He 
We said, let's go on a walk, which we did a lot because I had a dog. We didn't take the dog, though, which was kind of strange. Um, and went on a trail and walked up to a tree, and he gave a big speech. He did not have a ring. He drew on my finger with a Sharpie a heart. And it, you know, it felt a little unromantic, just not a ton of effort or thought put into it. But I'm also not an over-the-top girl. Like, I don't, I mean, I, I don't really care that much about those kinds of things. But I did kind of want a little fanfare, right? You know, <laughs> it just felt kind of like an everyday situation. And I didn't feel as excited as I thought I would. So we went to dinner alone, and I don't even remember why or what he was talking about, but he yelled at me the entire dinner, and I cried the entire dinner. And I was thinking to myself, like, we're a week out from getting married. And I just I thought I could love him enough to change it. I really did. I, I truly think when I look back that I married him with my uterus, <laughs> as weird as that sounds. Like, I wanted babies so much, and I had been thinking about it for years. I mean, I'd worked with children since I was 12. Like, I'd been babysitting, and I was a nanny, and... It just was something that I wanted, and we'd been dating for years, and I didn't want to start over. And now I'm like, well, I had to start over anyway, and it was a lot harder. (laughs) But you don't know those things at the time. You just don't. So we got married. Um, I wasn't really nervous. Uh, We had our first dance on the beach, took some pictures. We had a photographer. That's the only other person that was there. And during our pictures, he told me I must have had coffee. And I was like, uh... Are you saying my breath stinks? Like, I just felt like this is not the right time to say that. And I chewed gum and it just was like a hurtful comment. Like, that's a weird thing to say. Um, and then he said, did you even try to get rid of your tan lines? Because I was a nanny and I wore t-shirts a lot. And so, I don't know, maybe I had some sort of tan. But I was, but his vows were nice. And I felt like overall it was a good day. But I just remember being like, that was kind of rude. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know? on, on your wedding day um, here, which is for... Everyone uh, at that point in their life, probably the biggest day or, or, of their lives, and then, then usually children mm-hmm. are born. But you know, you're being insulted and being put down on right. the day that's supposed to be special. Right. Well, and you always say I was so sensitive, you know, and it's like, no, I think anyone would be kind of frustrated at that comment, especially with the situation. So, I mean, ironically, he would say that he was. Um, he, he bought a book called, you know, a highly sensitive person. And he believed he was highly sensitive, but yet I was always too sensitive when he would call me names or things. So when you guys got married, um, did Mm -hmm. things then shift the type of behavior uh, that would occur? So like now you are locked in, you're living with each other and you're married and now, you know, you were on this trajectory kind of going to, you were on a downhill slant before, but now it's like a steep incline uh, going downward. Yep. Yep. And it felt almost instant when I look back. Um, you know, he always wanted to move after about a year and a half. That was his pattern. Um, and so he wanted to move. We, we, you know, been married like three or four months. And obviously he had lost that one job, you know, a year prior and I was just nannying. So I, I didn't, I wasn't locked into anything. And so he wanted to go to the place that he was raised and I visited once. I thought it was beautiful. And I was like, yeah, let's go. That's fine. You know, let's start fresh. And I thought maybe it would be a nice start for us because we had kind of hit a lot of 
I felt like he was kind of being lazy and not really working. And I was pulling, you know, the family cart by myself and was just getting a little discouraged. And so we could save money by moving there, you know, moving out of California. Um, cost of living was going to basically be split in half or lower. And so I was like, yeah, I'm all for it. So it was exciting. And then within a week, he picked a giant fight over something super stupid. And I remember saying to him, like, you couldn't even give us a week. Because it really felt that way. It felt like he just couldn't let us enjoy life together. So we start talking about having a baby. Um, he got, I, I found about that this is pretty normal now, but he got pretty jealous of the attention I got being pregnant. He didn't like that, you know, everything was kind of about the baby and my health and, um, when we we went to our first my first appointment, you know, where they're gonna try to hear the heartbeat, and we were we were seeing midwives, so it wasn't um, you know as many appointments. He they wanted to do a blood draw for me and just kind of test, you know. I think they check like vitamin D and your iron and various things to see if you need any supplements and just make sure you know the baby's getting what they need. And he says, "Can you draw my blood?" And they kind of looked at him like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they said they had never been asked that before by a husband or, a, a, you know, a partner. Like, he had to make it about him, though. I mean, he really had to find a way to kind of do that. Um, and later, my midwife, because we're still friends, actually, she said, you know, I did find it odd. She's like, I didn't know he was abusive, but I did find it odd because I would ask you questions about, like, your diet or how you were sleeping, and he would answer before you could. And she said, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and I, I don't even remember that. <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting observation. And this is kind of when everything started to intensify. Like, he started to pick on so many little things. Um, the way I eat my apples, like, I have small teeth, so I like to cut them. And that was wrong. Uh, he said, I drank beer too slowly because I, I could literally milk a beer for a couple of hours. And I'm like, who cares? I mean... <laughs> You don't have to drink it when it's warm. Like, it's my beer. If I want to drink it slow, it doesn't affect anyone else but me. Uh, he said I couldn't open a wine bottle, that I was clumsy. And it kind of made me feel like I was being watched. And so I started being bad at it because it felt like like if you're trying to parallel park and somebody else is in the car. <laughs> and you're just like, I can't do this anymore. I used to be able to. But now I'm nervous. You know, or like... Cooking. Cooking used to be a big thing because he'd, you know, eat dinner and be like, did you even season this at all? Um, and it just, it really took me a long time to get over that insecurity. And it turns out I'm actually a pretty good cook, but he had me convinced that I was terrible at it. So he, he would knit, he would constantly nitpick and it was like, re- it was yep. relentless. Yeah. Yeah. And then just, I wouldn't eat apples around him. You know, like I had to stop doing these things because I just didn't want to hear it. And I knew that it would come up because he couldn't not say it. So here I am changing these small behaviors, but that's annoying. You know, I should just be able to live life with my partner and not feel like I'm constantly under a microscope, especially when he's doing a lot of things that are blatantly not helpful for our family. And I'm not saying anything, <laughs> you know, like, and here these things don't affect anyone and aren't hurting our family. And yet... You know, it's going to be brought up every time. And I remember one big fight was 
he was talking about, you know, when you're on a bike or, you know, if your turn signals aren't working, you use hand signals out the window. And then we saw someone doing that because it was, you know, a community where people rode bikes. And I was like, you know, I don't think I know the hand signals. And he's like, yeah, you do. I was like, no, I don't think I do. Like, I don't remember any of them. I might have, you know, known them when I took a driver's test or something. And he would not let it go. He's like, you do know them. I'm like, I, I don't. I mean, are we going to talk about this for 20 minutes? <laughs> and we did. I think he talked about, you know, he was just going on and on about how I knew it. And I'm like, I can Google it, but I, I don't know it. If you ask me right now to tell, you know, tell you all of the hand signals. And also, why the heck does that matter? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it was exhausting because I, I always felt like I was on the defense of these ridiculous conversations. Did you feel a lot that you were damned if you did or damned if you didn't, no yes. matter what your answer was? Yep. And I'm a very talkative person. Not sure if you've noticed. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I can be a little bit of a wind-up toy just because I am social and I've been on lockdown. So um, I usually am only talking to people that I birthed and married. So sometimes I like to talk. But, uh, yeah, I felt like I just stopped talking unless I really had to to him because I would be in trouble. So I was really a lot less of who I am. And, you know, he had people he would talk to on the phone for hours. Um, One of them was his cousin. And, unfortunately, they both were kind of philosophical, and they would just, you know, they thought, probably both narcissists, I don't know. I mean, I never met the cousin. But too much ego for one room. They would kind of combat each other in conversation. And he went to visit him one weekend, and they got in a big fight. And he called me after he he left and said he'd left his hat there, and he was going to go back and get it the next day. And I was like, well, if it really was a bad fight, like you're saying, you know, maybe just don't. We can get a new hat. You know, it's not a big deal. I wouldn't I wouldn't go. And I just felt like if he went, it wasn't going to go well. And I was right. <laughs> I'll never really know the truth of what happened, but he called me the next day and said, I went over there anyway. I got my hat, but, you know, he fought with me and he tore my jacket. I twisted my ankle and broke my sunglasses and he attacked me. And, you know, his cousin weighed maybe 120 and my ex was shorter, but he was, you know, upwards probably around 200. So I'm thinking, really? This guy has health issues and he attacked you and... I mean, he had weak feet, so I will say that, but he was obsessed with his injury. Like, after he, he told everyone he broke his foot, he never went to a doctor. Um, he ended up going to, like, a medical supply place and bought this bright green cane and became obsessed with using it because everyone would come up to him and be like, oh, what did you do? You know, and it was just insane how in love he was with being injured. Um, so... You know, at this point, you know, before we get to uh, you uh, having a baby, oh, you know, everyone has different types of uh, uh, narcissist, you know, because, you know, the way we define narcissists on the show is is, is loose. But, you know, the style of, uh, of the one that you have, it seems like he is a, a victim player and yeah. um, he, he lies a lot. Um, and there's something in the back of my mind that just kind of says that you're going to, you're either currently his mom or like, it's really going to become noticeable later that like, 
you know, he has you, you, you're steady at working. You're ta- you're the responsible one. He's not the responsible one. You're always having to whip him into shape. You know, you know, in the sense of like, something's always kind of happening. He's losing his job. You know, he's bring he's sporadic mm-hmm. with things. You're paying for everything, not everything, but like a lot of the stuff that you might not, you should not be paying for. You're, you're doing you're, you're the mm-hmm. ring and all these things. And that like, mm-hmm. you know, he might've, whatever situation he wasn't before with uh his family and the religion you know him like being uh shunned who knows what the story is there really but it seems like maybe in my mind that this is a guy that doesn't like being told what to do or like authority of any way but he uh still can't yep. handle life himself and like he always needs a mom or someone to take care of his screw-ups yeah, I mean, he wouldn't ever put it. <clears throat> he would never put it in those terms um, because he wouldn't admit that. But I, I definitely felt like you need me, but you don't want me. Like you just like what I stand for, and that I will continue to be someone you can count on. You know what I'm going to do. You know, he would call me boring because I would pay bills, and he made me feel like I had no good thoughts in my head about anything. Like nothing I said held any weight or could possibly be wise or knowledgeable in any area, <laughs> you know, it's strange, you know, and he would pick fights on holidays or special occasions, like pretty consistently. And I mean, once we had a tickets to see our favorite band three hours away. And so we drive and he makes me drive because he smoked a lot before we left. And he argued at me the whole way, like yelled the whole way. And when we got there, he told me I was not allowed to go to the show. And I'm thinking, you know, we're staying overnight at a hotel. We bought tickets months ago. Is our favorite band. It was our wedding song that they, you know, they sang our wedding song. And I found out later, he's like, okay, we can go. You're allowed. And he had called or emailed the band and asked them to play my favorite song. And I'm thinking, why in the world did you go to all that trouble and then pick a fight and tell me I can't go and expect that to be a romantic gesture, you know, it just didn't match up. Like, it didn't make any sense why he would do that. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I didn't get out much because I wasn't nannying anymore. Because in that town, you know, in California, you can make some bank as a nanny. But in other states, you know, they, they don't pay the same amount because your cost of living is lower. So I was just doing my remote job. So I was home, and I was stuck with him and pregnant and... Um, you know, church was kind of my social time and I would look forward to it a lot. And we had a little church group and a lot of the time he would yell at me on the way there. And so I'd be, you know, puffy eyed and awkward trying to fake it with my friends. Just I'm not a good faker. I mean, my mom has a picture from my like eighth birthday party where we went bowling and I'd gotten, you know, 14 gutter balls in a row or something. I don't know. There's 10 frames, 10 gutter balls in a row. and my shoulders are slumped and I'm half bent over, you know, I mean, I'm not great at pretending and I got better at it through this relationship, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of people thought something was off just because of that. Um, and they started to think he was a little strange because he, he started focusing more on, you know, more of that lucid dreaming third eye kind of talk, but it, it shifted at this time. And I really do think that the pot smoking did some damage to his brain Um, he had a lot of surgeries as a child, like before he was 
you know, four or five on his feet. And he used to say that, you know, the, as a child of the seventies, like they put them under with that black balloon and it ruined his brain, but it also made him smarter than everyone, you know, at, at the same time. And so he would talk about all these crazy things as if it started to get a little scary to me. Um, he was talking about a utopian society and asking our friends to join us. And he wanted to call it this, you know, he was going to call it this weird name and we were going to live in the desert and wear white. So it sounds like a cult, <laughs> right? <laughs> and he was going to be the leader. Um, and so one of my friends asked if we could go on a walk and we did that sometimes, you know, and, you know, we're, we're halfway through and she awkwardly is like, so, um, basically my husband at the time, ex, had asked her husband to be a part of our compound, you know, and run, he was like a, a PE guy and did CrossFit. And so she was like, he asked him if he would do the health part and like the fitness area. And it really freaked him out. Like, what are you talking about? Um, and he would talk about it with everyone. He didn't really have a concept of how crazy it kind of sounded. And he couldn't pick up on when people were feeling awkward or visibly uncomfortable. But he just would keep going. And he'd go on these walks, like, around the desert near our house and just say weird things about having followers and how he really felt called to do something bigger. And it started to scare me because it didn't seem normal. It didn't seem like dreams and aspirations. It seemed... Um, it sounds like he wants know. to be the center of attention and have people um, worship him, uh, you know, and give mm-hmm. him, you know, yeah. the respect uh, yeah. that someone of his um, mental prowess deserves. Right. Um, and so I just, I kind of started to get scared and, you know, everything I was taught, now granted my parents did get divorced, but you know, you try to make it work. Like we talked about, like marriage is for life and you don't get divorced. And we've only been married like two years and I'm pregnant. So <laughs> I'm thinking, is this my life? Like, am I going to be married to a cult leader? Cause I'm not going to do that, but how is it going to play out? You know? Um, but at this point, nothing is physical, right? It's all mental. It's all financial, emotional, spiritual. Cause now he's, he's ramped that up. So when I was pregnant was the first time that he was ever physically abusive. And apparently that is very common. Um, I, I don't know. He just, uh, he wanted me to sit on the couch and that's not a big deal. Right. But he yelled at me and I'm not going to repeat, you know, I mean, he swore at me and he yelled, come sit on the couch. And it was a lot meaner than what I just did. And I said, I will come sit down if you ask nicely. Like, I will have a conversation with you, but you do not get to yell and scream at me like that. And I'm, I'm telling him, you know, I've had some heart rate issues while pregnant. Like, I'm trying to be calm, take care of our baby. And he was furious that I would not, you know, listen to him. So he came over, grabbed my arms really hard and held on and forced me over to the couch and kept holding my arms. And I'm going, that is hurting and he said, the wind would bruise you. And, you know, the next day I had fingertip bruises on both of my arms. And so I'm thinking, this is not okay. Um, 
so I, I did have that thought, but I also didn't know what to do, <laughs> you know? Um, so at this point, you know, I'm worried because I'm eight months pregnant and I'm thinking, well, I could have the baby anytime. What if I have those bruises on my arm and somebody sees it? Like I was embarrassed, you know, but it had only happened once. And so I was telling myself that, and it wasn't that bad, quote unquote. Right. Um, so it gets to, I'm overdue with the baby and it's, we were going to have, you know, a very low-key, non-medicated midwife delivery. That was my plan. I'd had a pretty easy pregnancy, but at the end, you know, I had to get induced. I was 11 days late, and um, my fluid was low. So it ended up being kind of an emergency. It wasn't a C-section, but it was, you know, we had to go to the hospital. We couldn't do the earthy delivery. But he said, you know, you better not get an epidural. And he, I mean, I... I knew better in a way than to even try or think about it. Um, and he, he just kept talking about how my labor was hard on him, <laughs> which anyone who's had a baby and doesn't punch the person who says that is a hero. And so I call myself a hero because I did not. But, you know, it was, uh, I was in labor for 23 hours and I had no medication and I was induced so that, you know, it was pretty intense. And I had a lot of back labor. Um, and then the delivery ended up being pretty stressful. I pushed for an hour and she had to go to the NICU. Um, she wasn't really pink. She was kind of gray and she had some fluid in her lungs. And so I didn't even get to, I, I mean, I touched her foot because I asked. I said, can I touch her? And they like put down the side of the little, you know, uh, incubator thing. And I touched her foot and then they took her away. And I didn't get to see her for three hours. But, you know, I did eventually obviously get to go hold her and do all that stuff, but he just kept talking about himself. You know, he, um, at one point I got into the tub to kind of try to relax and my tank top that I had on was all wet. And so he cut it off with scissors and he was like, everybody, the nurses, midwife, everyone's going to think that was so sexy. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> like, Your wife is in labor and you're thinking about how sexy you look cutting my tank top. Like it was just so strange, you know? Um, so the first night we get home after a couple of days, you know, that she's been in the NICU. It happens to be my, the night before my birthday and he sleeps 12 hours. You know, he does not move. I'm up and down. I think I slept 45 minutes because I'm a new mom. She wasn't eating as much as I thought she needed. And at one point, you know, I, I hear her cry and I get up and he's like, Ugh. And I looked at him and I sighed because I was just like, are you kidding me? Um, you know, it's the morning of my birthday and I'm postpartum and in pain from the delivery and, you know, nursing a baby for the first time and all this stuff is happening and it's all about him. And he came out in the living room and said, you are so selfish. I can't believe that you would sigh at me. I am exhausted. <laughs> and, you know, I can laugh about it now, but at the time I was just like, uh, what is my life? You know, I mean, just it was crazy. And did things did things ramp up after uh, the baby? Absolutely. That's when, yeah, that's when it got very intense. And you know, anyone who's had a baby, it just changes everything. Of course. Um. You know, three weeks postpartum, he was yelling at me about something. Balling, I was bawling on the couch, feeding the baby, and he's like, we're heading for divorce, and it's your fault. And he picks up the phone and calls my mom, which he never did. So she's like, 
hey, you know, she's excited to hear from him thinking he's checking in with me. And she just lays into her about me and she's confused. Like what? And she said, can I talk to her? And I'm crying. And she's like, are you okay? And of course I wasn't, she was supposed to come visit. And she's like, should I not come? And I'm like, oh gosh, please come. <laughs> like, I need somebody here. Um, he put it on speaker and just kept going and going and going. And she finally said, you sound scary. And he said, I am passionate and no one understands me. So it was just kind of this excuse of like, I can say anything I want because I'm coming from a place of dominance. You know, I'm so much smarter than everyone and I can't do anything wrong. So your interpretation of it is what's wrong. Um, you know, the mental, verbal, all that stuff was constant daily, but physical could be months and months between incidents. So at the same time, he used sleep deprivation as kind of a torture tactic. I mean, he would just force me to listen to him. So you're here, you know, you're, you have your baby, you're at home, mm -hmm. you're being sleep deprived, not just because you have a baby, but because... He right. is draining you. He's, uh, you know, from the person that you originally met to where he is now, he's scary. You're now, it's really mm -hmm. obvious at this point that he has a real grandiose sense of himself. Yet at the same time, he doesn't want to do the work to back up that grandiosity. You yourself right. here, are you feeling trapped in your relationship, do you think that divorce is something that is now on your mind and that can happen? How are you getting kind of like through the day and like, are, are, are you inching, inching that way? Is anyone's like kind of planting that seed in your mind? You have to get out of here. Um, not really. Cause they didn't know. Um, I would only talk to my family when I wasn't at home because if I had a phone call in the house, he would picket my conversation he would always be like, why do you guys just talk about the weather? And I mean, that's not what we were talking about. But to him, if you're not delving into philosophy, you know, why talk? And so when my sister and I would be like, oh, how's your job going? Or, you know, talk about people we knew or friends or whatever it was that interested us music, it wasn't deep enough for him. And so it was stupid. So I just wouldn't talk to people at home. <laughs> or if I did, I was really quiet, which they picked up on. Um... And he picked on my family. He would blame my dad for everything that was wrong with me. And I was like, yeah, I feel like you've done a lot more damage to me emotionally than he ever did. He just wasn't around. You're never not around. And every time you're around, you're laying into me constantly. Um, to answer your question about divorce, though, he used to always throw that out in, in arguments. Like, we'll get divorced, we'll get divorced. And I told him it bothered me because me, you know, I'm in it for the long haul. And I felt like he used it all the time as a weapon against me because it would really hurt so in a way it was like a reverse psychology against you based upon your yes. on your personality where you're like no in, mm -hmm. internally you're like i'm gonna fight for this where in reality yeah it, like, yeah where if yeah. it was your idea like if it came from your mind you probably been like okay i can this is the way it's going but since he did it in a way where it was taking something away from you and the way things had played out in your belief system instead of saying like oh, that's a good idea it went into like a a uh a moment for you where uh it, what's the best way to, i don't know if it's a fight or flight kind of thing but you're like i'm fighting for for this even though that's probably right. not what you even wanted it's just something in you naturally uh went that way based upon all the stuff that was going on 
Definitely. And he would, um, you know, he would um, take down all of our wedding photos after a fight and put them, like, in frames off the wall. You know, I had, like, a wall that had, you know, I don't know, seven or eight pictures. He'd take them all down and put them in a garbage bag and put them in the garage and put them up when he decided that they, you know, that I was worthy of him having those back up. Or he'd take his ring off and put it, you know, on the windowsill where I would see it and say, I'll put it on when you deserve it. It was all this. I never really felt safe in the relationship. And I don't mean physically. I mean, I didn't feel, I felt like this could go at any time, even though we were married. I did not feel secure at all. And and I was constantly, yeah, like you said, like he switched it. And so I had no power. I was just doing what I could to not get divorced. So at, at one point, you know, I told my sister, it was the first time I mentioned that he had put his hands on me. And she said, you need to leave the house. And I said, but he won't let me leave with the baby. And I'm scared to leave her here. And I told him, I said, I need to get out for a little bit. And he's like, well, you have to leave her here. And she was napping. And so I was like, okay, I'll just try to be back before she wakes up. You know, and I, I, we had a pretty good routine at that point. And I, I did all of that. So I knew her (laughs) routines. So I went to try to get help. And I sat in the parking lot of this, I don't even remember, you know, if it was like a human resources or, you know, something for the town that you could go get free help. I had looked it up and I talked to my sister on the phone. And I, it took me an hour to psych myself up to go because it felt like a step that I couldn't come back from. And it was terrifying. And so then I, I finally go in and like look at the directory and realize where I need to go is upstairs. And I find, you know, this cubicle or whatever the space is. And I ask the lady about it and I'm kind of embarrassed and trying to be quiet. And she says, so loud. I mean, I'm sure it felt louder in my head. Are you at a place where you would like to commit suicide or you want to harm yourself or others? And I'm like, no. And she was like, okay, well, here's, you know, and gives me some pamphlets or like, and says I can go to these different places. Like basically, I just wanted to talk to a counselor. That's kind of what I went there for is I needed to talk to someone. And they basically, you know, loudly announced what they announced, which I felt I don't even know if there was anyone around. I can't remember. But I just felt so overwhelmed, and I think I just went straight home. (laughs) So it felt like a total waste. Um, And at that time, my sister said, well, why don't you come down here, and we'll go, you know, we'll go see some family, and, like, you can just have a break. So I did. She, you know, of course, she paid for it and flew me and the baby down there. Um, You know, she's, like, three and a half months old or something. And... It was, you know, I, I, we went to see my dad and he had some magazine that I was just flipping through, you know, and it had an article on emotional abuse. And I remember thinking like, he literally does every single one of these things. And I tore it out. I asked my dad if I could, cause that's what I am. <laughs> I asked, you know, I asked permission and I took it home with me and I was going to show him cause I, I had never really put it in the abuse category to this point. Obviously I knew the bruises were wrong. I knew that that was not right, but I didn't understand that all that other stuff was abuse. I really didn't. And so when I got home, you know, I showed him the article and he tore it up into tiny pieces. He didn't even look at it. And I cried when I had to go home. I, it was so hard to leave my sister and just, I had felt happy for a week, you know, and then I knew I was going back into just chaos. 
Um, and <laughs> this is the kicker. So he picks me up at the airport and he wants a parade because he has bought me a coffee on my, you know, Starbucks card. <laughs> like, thank you. Um, and then when we get home to our house, he had forgotten to mention he moved his old roommate from L.A. and that guy's girlfriend into our house. So I have a baby and now there's people in my house that I'm paying the rent on, right? That I didn't even get to talk about this. And he's like, well, they're going to pay um, and buy groceries. So that'll be really helpful. There was laundry all over our room. Like he didn't even try to kind of, you know, have me not come into a mess. Um, I just felt really stuck. You know, I've got a baby, I've got this horrible husband, and now there's these two random people in my house. And part of me was like, well, maybe he'll be nicer to me if, like, there's an audience, right? I mean, maybe. (laughs) But he just kind of kept it behind closed doors. You know, and I remember one time he was really mad, and, you know, he was always uh, not wanting me to sleep. Uh, That was kind of just his way to make me feel crazy, I think. But he picked up, I wasn't in the bed, I was sitting on the floor, and he picked up the end of our bed and, like, dropped it down on the floor really hard, and it kind of separated at the headboard. And we were about to leave the house. And so um, we got into the car, and I was like, oh, I forgot my water, and I ran back inside. And when I went back inside, that couple was standing in our bedroom looking at the broken bed. (laughs) And I was like, hmm, well, guess we heard him, you know. But he that he didn't really care, and he really didn't. He said that guy was his new business partner, um, and they set up an office in our garage, and he somehow convinced him to give him five thousand dollars from his retirement to help with this you know non-existent business venture. They were going to make baby clothes or something. I don't even remember what they're you know. And they were trying to find investors, and he had such lofty, inaccurate to how he could actually do things gold. I mean, at one point there was a giant um, sports store at the like shopping center that had gone out, you know, and so this is big empty facility. And he set up a tour with a realtor to go through it. And I'm thinking this space is probably four grand minimum a month, you know, like you don't have that. You don't have $40. This is so strange. It's like, what do you think is going to happen? I I think he truly believed, well, I just haven't done it yet, but I will. You know, there was no basis in what his real life was. He he got this guy to give him $5,000, and a week later they had a work road trip, and apparently he did the same thing he used to do to me where he just told him he was lazy and overweight and all this stuff on the whole drive to wherever they were going. So I, I'm, I'm at home. I don't know any of this is happening. I get a voicemail from X saying, Hey, you know, we made it and hope you have a good day. Love you. And I have another voicemail from the other guy <laughs> and it's the complete opposite. It says, I just left your husband at the gas station. I will not be talked to the way that he talked to me. We're moving out of your house. He's a jerk. He's a terrible person. And I'm thinking, like, wow, okay. You know, I mean, it's just no basis in reality most of the time. So, you know, that's what I'm dealing with. And he started to bruise me more often, but always just these weird situations where, you know, at, at one time we were driving home from church, I think, and the baby had fallen asleep. And I was thinking, 
oh, shoot, I'm going to have to wake her up to feed her, which, you know, you don't love to do when they're sleeping. And I, I mentioned it to him, and he said, you need to calm down. And I'm thinking, I, I'm not, not calm. So we get to the house, and I get out and walk in to feed the baby, and he came into the nursery, like, practically sprinting and told me how disrespectful I was for getting so worked up, and he was going to force me to calm down. And I'm thinking, what? I'm sitting here, like, about to feed our baby, you know? So he puts her in the crib and then pens my arms up against the wall behind my head, and I have no idea why this was happening. I told him it hurt, and I was able to kind of, like, wriggle free. I mean, I'm not, um, you know, as strong as him, but I, I was a swimmer, and I have some muscle. And he ended up hitting me so hard in the face, just, you know, a slap that I fell all the way to the floor. And he would always say, you know, but I didn't hit you with a closed fist. You just bruise easily. It's like they would, they'd seriously laugh at you if you tried to go to some woman's shelter. So I just kind of felt like I was blowing it up a little bit, which now sounds ridiculous. But then I told one neighbor on a walk and I just, nothing happened. You know, I thought something would happen. I don't know what I thought would happen, but I, I almost think I needed to be lifted out of it. Like the claw game, you know, like I didn't know how that was going to happen. I could tell someone like 1% of what I was going through and it was still too shocking for a lot of people. And I kind of get that, but it also made me feel really helpless. You know, I mean, the baby's getting older and I'm worried it's going to come against her at some point because, you know, babies don't really make people angry. Although he would tell me I needed to keep her quiet and she was a very easy baby. Um, she let me sleep. He just didn't, you know, I mean, truthfully, she was good. Um, he would, he would set me up to get in trouble. Cause he would say, you know, I'm going to take a nap and you need to wake me up at this time. And then when I would wake him up, he would be mad at me because I, I wasn't gentle enough or whatever it might be. He'd tell me, I'm not, I'm not going to drink tonight. You know, if we were going out to see friends or something and then he would drink. And if I was like, do not want to drink, he wouldn't yell at me. <laughs> so, Cause he'd be like, you know, don't let me drink tonight. And then if I mentioned it, I was in trouble for it. So it's just very confusing um, I kind of just stopped talking, like we were saying. There were so many double standards. Um, he wanted me to quit my job to show him I trusted him, even though that was literally the only consistent money we had. And he, he made me sit in our closet, and he wouldn't let me leave until I said the words, I trust you, in a voice he believed, which, I mean... <laughs> I was too tired to fake it, you know, and he never, he he did not believe me. So I think I slept in the closet because he finally like gave up and put himself to bed. But it was just, it was just stuff like that where I was exhausted. I felt like I was stuck in this house with this person isolated as he wanted it. You know, I don't think everything is okay. Um, But he always told me that I will have you, he said he would have me arrested for kidnapping if I ever tried to leave with the baby. And he would take my phone or my keys to my car. And I think that's what people don't get who aren't in these situations is you can't just, you know, pick up and leave. There's so many moving parts. I had a dog who I'd had for a decade. I didn't know how to get out. And I didn't want to involve anyone else and put them at risk because at this point he was violent. And it felt safer to be the one suffering if that makes any sense. And I, I remember at one point, you know, I was 
I would always kind of just run away from him and try to find myself in a room if he was raging. And I, the people had moved out by this point, right? So it was just us back at the house. And he's running into the door. He, he could always somehow get through a locked door. But I was kind of pushing my weight against the door. And I remember thinking, like, how is this my life? Like, how did I not know he was this and this dangerous person? I just felt so trapped. But over time, I started to see divorce as, like, sweet relief, you know, as much as it used to be a bad word. You know, I, I would get home from anything and my stomach would sink because I knew I was walking into something. It was never good, you know. I mean, he dumped laundry on my head while I was crying. He he just do these behaviors that were not okay, you know. And he didn't even look like himself in those moments. His eyes would kind of turn black, you know. Just there was no emotion in there but anger. And then his you know his vein in his neck would pulsate, and he was terrifying in those moments. Um, I remember one of my friends came over after he dumped the laundry on me and said. You know, she came in and she saw him like that and she was terrified too. And we went on a walk together and she said, you know, do you think he could be a sociopath? And I didn't know much about that. So I looked it up and I went through the list and he did every single thing of those, even down to like abusing animals because he would he'd pull my dog's ears until he would kind of like go, you know, yelp a little bit. And I'd ask him to stop, but he was like, oh, it doesn't hurt. He's just, you know, he's just overreacting. And he'd pinch his dog his parents' dog and say, pinchy, pinchy. And he's like, he likes it, (laughs) you know, and it doesn't seem he wasn't doing anything drastic to pets, but he just didn't care if they hurt, which isn't normal, you know? So it, it started to amp up here. And the last week that I was home before I left, there were three times that he abused me that week. And I knew we were not coming back to a good spot. There was no, build up anymore it was all tension and incidents and you know what I mean there was no recovery point there was no honeymoon period or rest for me at all um and then the one night we'd had a good day we had hung out with friends gotten home and we were sitting on the couch watching something and I took a sip of his drink and he said you did not ask and I said you know I was kind of like jokingly I was like may I please have a sip of your drink you know and he said master and I just was like (sighs) and then he just was angry at me the whole rest of the night you know just laid into me and I don't remember what he did I'm sure just slapping me or I, I really I couldn't tell you um and the next day was the worst day and that's that's what was the turning point for me. Um, I had a planned nine day trip. I was supposed to leave really early in the morning and I'd only had three hours of sleep because the night before it was the night that I was supposed to call him master. And he was, you know, he kept me up all night and then I have a baby. So I have to get up and he sleeps all day. So, um, I went to bed, I'd packed and, you know, I'm taking a baby across the country and I need some sleep. I was in there maybe 10 minutes and he came in, ripped the sheets off the bed. Um, you know, he'd been drinking wine and he just laid into me again. And it was, it was the worst night of my life. And I can't tell you what happened because I really don't remember. Um, I know he hit me in all the rooms of the house. Cause I have these little snippets of memories, like of me by the front door of me in the kitchen of me in our room. Like, I don't know how I got there. Um, 
the turning point for me was I ran back into our room and got on our bed and the baby had started crying. And so he went and got her and came back in, you know, still in his rage. And he put her on the bed and came towards me to hit me. And I was yelling, the baby, the baby. And she fell off the bed because he just didn't care. He was raging so much. He couldn't think about both things at once. And when it was her and she had fallen because of that, I was just done. You know, I had this, like, I can't, I cannot do this. Um, but I didn't know how I was going to, how I was going to leave because he'd taken my suitcase that I'd already packed and my phone and my keys and put them. I don't know where. So I was like, well, (laughs) I think he let me go to bed 45 minutes before I was supposed to wake up. So I didn't know what was happening. I'm like, well, I'm probably not going on this trip. Right. Um, and he was like, well, he woke me up and he said, well, let's go to the airport. And I'm thinking, okay. I mean, I don't even know if I could think clearly. I'd slept barely that entire week and also just been through hell, you know, the night before I was just a zombie. And so I fell asleep in the car for a little bit. And when I woke up, he just starts laying into me again. Um, and then he says that he thinks he could be Jesus. And I remember I was just so over it. And I said, I'm pretty sure Jesus wouldn't hit his wife. And of course he didn't like that very much, but I just, I mean, I was broken, you know, I was just at this point of like, gosh, you know, and he was like, I'm going to be a life coach. I'm thinking your life is a pile of crap. Like you're not doing anything well. So of course he wants to tell everyone else how to do it. Right. So he somehow, he drove me three hours to the airport and with the baby and he tried to hug me when we got there and I was stiff as a board. I mean, I was just like, get me away and away from this person, I think I sort of knew I wouldn't be back because when I said goodbye to the dog, I cried, which I wouldn't normally do that, you know, for a road trip or anything, but I had a feeling, I think, and I got into the airport and I flew across the country and I never went home. And I knew that I was going to have more bruises than I'd ever had because I was already sore. And, you know, I was going somewhere where I was going to be wearing a swimsuit and I'm like, well, (laughs) everybody's going to know. So it kind of was like, this is the time that it's going to end because they're not going to let me go back, you know, and that's really how I thought. But I I was so grateful because I knew that I was probably going to be okay. And I didn't even know you could get a bruise from just being slapped because he never punched me in the face, but I got a bruise across my jaw from just repeated slapping. And I had bruises, you know, on my rib cage, up and down my legs, up and down my arms and more than I'd ever had. And so I took photos and I was like, I don't know what I need to do with this, but I tried to call the police and they kind of made me feel really stupid because I wasn't quoting, you know, I wasn't injured, they said. And so they were like, well, it's kind of more like harassment. I, I don't know. I just, I didn't even nothing really came from that. So he was texting me and trying to, you know, bring me back in the Hoover, right? He's like, I've never loved you more. I figured out what we can do. We're going to be fine. Just all, you know, he changed his Facebook picture to like one from our wedding day and wrote this big post about how I was the best person he'd ever met. I mean, it's just, I saw right through it at that point. He's like, just come home. We'll figure this out. 
Um, but I was, I was with my best friends from college who've known me 15 years and they saw the bruises and I opened up about it and they just went into action mode of like, I mean, I used to call them my superheroes without the capes because they were, I couldn't think, you know, I was like many people describe, I, I was a shell. I couldn't make a decision. <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted about anything because he always told me that it was wrong. So, I mean, one of my friends said, we were making salad and she's like, do you want chicken on it? And I said, I don't know. And she asked me like a couple of things and she said, I either shrugged or I said, I wasn't sure. I didn't know. And I just, his voice was a megaphone. Mine had become like, I couldn't even hear my own, you know? So they'd known me so long. They, they knew me to be confident, speak my mind. They just didn't recognize this person. And I, I didn't either. And it's weird because I have actually a video of the night like that morning on the plane with the baby and I'm smiling and interacting with her, but I know <laughs> I have never felt lower than I did in that moment, but you just couldn't tell because I'd gotten really good at just being normal. And he said he didn't remember that night. He said he'd had too much wine and, you know, maybe I'd given myself the bruises. And he said, you know, he retold the story to people after it started to come out. And he said that I'd been drinking. I did not have a drop of alcohol that night. I was exhausted. I just wanted to sleep. You know, I was flying across the country with the baby. I wasn't about to drink that night. Um, you know, he's begging me to come back and saying he, he might do something to himself. I can't live without the baby. I can't do this. And I, I tried to have someone go check on him. I was concerned because I, at that time I was like, well, I can't tell my child, you know, I didn't, I didn't care at all. You know, I let something happen to your dad. I just, I didn't know. And no one would go check on him. I tried to, I asked two or three, four people. No one would go because they were over him at that point. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that's, that's a lot, you know, just it's interesting. Um, he had to pack up our house because he couldn't pay the rent without me. And he went up to his parents and, you know, made me feel bad about that, that I, he had to do all the work. <laughs> so, I mean, for the next year, it was insane for me. I was in eight different states. Um, I had to keep in touch with him for a while because legally, you know, until I could file and figure things out. Um, I stayed with friends and then I went back to LA and, um, was going to celebrate my baby's birthday, first birthday. And that's where I ended up filing finally. Um, but at that point I had heard about gray rock, which saved my life because, you know, it goes against your nature to not defend yourself when someone is basically breaking down your entire character and you know that you're not what they're describing. But with gray rock, all you do is you give these one word responses, you give them no emotion and they hate it. You know, I mean, they thrive on that attention, even if it's negative, it's like a small child. And so I knew it was working when he was like, you're so cold, you know, and he would, he would threaten me over the phone, but he'd lost that control. Right. I wasn't in person anymore. He could not, if I didn't answer the phone, he couldn't get me. So he'd just leave, you know, four minute voicemail and then we'd cut him off and he'd call back. If so I'd wake up in the morning and have like, <laughs> you know, however many he could do voicemails, just all the same stuff. He sent me a video once and said, you know, you need to watch this and it'll be about a half an hour. I didn't watch it. I did not have the time. It was two hours and 42 minutes of it, of him talking, you know, all the crap I'd heard 8,000 times before all the nights he wouldn't let me sleep. And the only thing I remember of it is 
he said, you know, when I make millions, if you divorce me, you won't get any. And our child's going to want to live with me because you're boring. (laughs) At that point, I was just, he couldn't hurt me anymore. And that was a good feeling, you know. Um, I didn't get my stuff back forever, two years, I think, before I got reunited with my furniture. He sold a lot of it. He kept some things. But when he packed our house, I mean, he put dirty dishes straight into a box. He took the kitchen drawers out and dumped them. No packing materials whatsoever. I open boxes and they're just full of broken glass. Just, you know, and I had this realization, like, you broke all of my stuff, but you didn't break me, which was what your goal was. And I'm okay. So I don't care about this stuff. You know, and it was funny because he would always call me materialistic because I was wanting to pay bills. Or, you know, I wanted to have a couch to sit on. And he was fine with simple things. And I'm thinking, you know, you broke all of my stuff and I don't care. I am not materialistic. I just want to be safe and happy. Um, It was hard to figure things out legally because I was kind of like a woman without a country driving around trying to stay safe. He was very scary at that time. I didn't know what he was capable of, but I knew he was mad. And I also knew, you know, leaving is the time that your chances of being significantly hurt by your significant other is it goes up, you know, a lot. Um, it's a very unsafe time. And so, uh, you know, I was moving all around. I was working full time in LA for two months because my coworker had emergency surgery. So I had the baby working 40 hours living with my sister and her two dogs in a room. (laughs) And he's like, Oh, you know, I know you're having the gayest time ever. You're having the most fun you've ever had. And those are the words he used. And he had no concept. Like I was, miserable, trying to figure all this stuff out, paying all the financial stuff, the NICU still, um, working and trying to see what my rights were. You know, I had a lawyer, um, I was staying in Texas. And so I called a lawyer in Texas thinking like, do I file here? You know, what residency do I have? Like, it just felt very overwhelming to do all that. And he said, well, you know, he'll probably get 50, 50 custody because he didn't hit the baby. And I'm thinking, are you serious? And he's like, well, you're not missing teeth. (laughs) What he said, he's thinking, I can't have this man have 50, 50 custody. You know, I mean, I knew what he was capable of. And I also knew that eventually that baby is going to become a child and children are difficult and he's going to get angry, you know? So I did see him one more time, but I, I never went back to that house. Um, he was living with his parents and, he was threatening me a lot and saying that if he didn't see her, it was not going to hold up in court for me very well. And I felt like I needed, you know, I left in such a haze of chaos that I was like, I need that moment to know if there's any hope of anything. And it was three or four days that I saw him and I knew there was no hope whatsoever. Um, He, I was sick when I got there and he ended up getting sick. Also, I hadn't seen him in three and a half months at this point. Um, but when I was sick, I took a 30 minute nap. And when he was sick, he didn't leave his room for two days. <laughs> so, you know, those uh, double standards were still rampant and I had a good time with his family, but you know, the only time we were alone, I stayed at a different house. We did not, you know, we did not share space. We did not share a bed. We had very few conversations, to be honest, because I wasn't, I did not feel safe doing that. 
So we were with his family the whole time, um, never unsupervised. And we went on one walk against my better judgment. And I, I told him, I, I said, I've seen glimmers of potential to maybe co-parent, but that I could not see our marriage coming back together. And he tried to hold my hand and he, he said that he was the only one who knew the real me. Yeah, he just was always trying to challenge me and like, let me reach my full potential. Right. So I will say, you know, I'm thankful for the trip because it was closure for me, even though I didn't say, Oh, I'm filing. Here's what's happening. It was the last time I saw him and I knew there was no hope for it. I knew I could look at my kid and say, I tried. And it was the last time I got to see my dog because he had to get put down a couple months later. So if that's all that came from it, that was good. So um, I finally got a restraining order and could block him when I was filing. So that felt like the first time I could really exhale. You know, I he'd been insanely attacking me. I mean, for my birthday that year, he gave me a week off some text messages. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to call you for a whole week. And I'm thinking that's my present. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like that's not normal, but you realize that it's a present to not hear from you. Um, he, t- he threatened my lawyer. He told her he was going to get a restraining order against her if she kept emailing him, but she was just trying to coordinate, you know, what had been set up and she was the only communication. <laughs> He tried to avoid being served, you know, and he was trying to move around a lot. And it was just a wild time. Um, but the divorce went through, you know, he never signed anything. So it went through by default, um, which I found out later he believes we're still married because of that. Um, it was, it was final in June. And in July, I had to live with people I had never met before, which was a little stressful. And I found out that he was kind of trying to come find us, which was also awful. So at this point I hadn't seen him in six months and I also hadn't heard, you know, he wasn't allowed to talk to me anymore. So it had been, I think at least four months since we'd had any interaction. And that was really nerve wracking to know that he was trying to find us. And I saw a counselor during that time, which is super important to mention just because I saw her two times a week. Um, I had seen a counselor once before I left, but it was, it didn't really go anywhere. Um, we talked through everything, this counselor and I, and, you know, she told me once I filed, she's like, do not date for a very long time. And I laughed because I was like, I can't even imagine wanting to, I can't imagine it. Like I am so ready to just not deal with anyone except my kid at this point. I'm so tired. And she just told me, you know, you're drawn, you were drawn to him, not because you're self-sabotaging, but it felt familiar to you. There's certain things about that personality that reminds you of your dad or the first guy you dated or, you know, whatever it was that felt comfortable. And you have to reset that, which made a lot of sense to me. Um, And then she also encouraged me, which I would encourage anyone who does want a future partner. She said, make a list of your non-negotiables. And do not deviate from that list. So make it as detailed as you want. But you settled for a lot of things that you said you'd never settle for. And it's true. You know, she, she only got there by what I had told her. So it did. I mean, it did make a big difference. So I graduated from that. She told me, you know, you're good. And we can keep doing phone sessions. Um, 
it was just, a, it was enough time because I was all over the place geographically, which that's hard with a baby. Um, and I was still working and my dad was diagnosed with cancer during that time. Um, he's fine, thankfully, but I went and stayed with him for the two months that he had radiation. And, you know, I think everyone says, you know, that first step is so hard, but it's really that second one. And then the thousands of other ones that were the most challenging for me, because it seems like when you leave an abusive relationship, it's almost like you're in a car crashing down the side of a mountain (laughs) and then you, you know, somehow get the car door open and roll out, but you have to get all the way back up, right? It feels that way. It feels like there's so much stuff you have to do, whether it's, oh, I don't have my pet and I don't have any of my things and I packed for eight days with a baby. You know, I have to get all these things switched to my name, and but every single step is worth it to be happy. And that's what I want to say is it's complicated, but it's more complicated to stay. Because it's no way to live to feel that way. And I I did go to a support group also, which I would encourage people to do because it really gave me a lot of perspective to hear other people's stories and not just be one-on-one with a counselor. Um, And the leader made a statement that I've quoted a lot of times to people who are going through something. And she said, you know, when you first leave, your, your pendulum swings really far. And you might see everyone as a potential threat. You know, you might think the worst of everyone (laughs) for a while. And you're just trying to self-protect. She said, but eventually, you know, you'll swing back. You'll swing back to a happy medium. You'll never be back to who you were before the trauma where you thought everyone was nice and kind. But you don't have to stay in that pessimistic place either. And I just think that's so good to remember. Like, we're changed by what happened, but we're not what happened. So that helped me a lot just to kind of move forward. Um, He ended up breaking the restraining order, not too surprising, but he was living with his parents, and they asked me if he could send presents for the baby, which really ticked me off because, you know, I'm scraping by trying to pay off the NICU and everything else, and he's not paid any child support, which was super low anyway. He hasn't done any of the video calls with the baby. He's had no interaction with her whatsoever, but he wants to buy, you know, be the fun parent, send presents. And I finally gave in after like, you know, three or four or five times of it being mentioned, like he's already got these presents, they're wrapped, and he won't know your address. You know, my sis- the sister will call the post office. I mean, they had all these arrangements that it was just like, just say yes and we'll handle it. He won't know where you are. So I say yes. I ended up being out of town when they arrived and it turned out he had, you know, much like a prisoner in jail, like (laughs) getting a a knife and a cake or something like he had wrapped the presents. But before he did so, he put um, these giant envelopes with my name on them. So it said, you know, number one, number two and number three. And it had all this stuff in it, like, Candy, one of my favorite movies, you know, a program from his grandpa's funeral that he had designed, handmade cards, you know, Bible verses and just all this stuff. I mean, it was a ton of stuff. And I called the police because he was not allowed to contact me. And clearly this had been like planned, you know, to do this and to get to me. Um, and they came over and took pictures of stuff and the female cop, she was like, wow, um, 
you know, this would be kind of sweet if you were dating, but this is really creepy since you're divorced with a restraining order. It's like, yeah, yep. Um, he was arrested, you know, for that, for violation, and he had to go to court, but it was a little slap on the wrist after like four, five, six continuances. Um, had to file for a new protective order, and that's the only time I had to do anything with him in a legal sense. Like, my lawyer did everything. So I went to court, and my first time was turned down, uh, which is insane. They said uh, this abuse was suffered longer than two years ago, which wasn't true. It had only been 18 months. And also, <laughs> like, what is that saying? I'm sorry. He hasn't hit you recently enough, right? Like, what? So it just feels like the burden of proof is on the wrong person that, you know, I have to prove that I no longer need protection. He doesn't have to prove he's no longer dangerous. And that's, that's tough. And especially recounting all of the abuse in detail is re-traumatizing. But you have to. Every time you file anything, you know, you have to write everything down. So um, I went to court because the second time they said I could have a hearing, and I didn't know until I got there that he was going to be calling in. It made me kind of happy because it was probably 5.30 or 6 his time. <laughs> and I knew how much he didn't like to get up until like 1 or 2. So I knew how inconvenient it was, which made me a little bit happy. Um, but, you know, it was one of those situations where my heart was pounding so much that I thought he could probably hear it. Like I thought everyone could probably hear it, where it's in your ear, in your head, you know, just hearing his voice. It's, it's the voice that haunts me, and it just – I hadn't heard it in a year. It was awful. But – um we had this like miracle from heaven, you know, I'm not trying to sound like him in a cult, but <laughs> the uh, computer crashed and that's how they do like the court reporting now. So while it was rebooting, the judge read through all my paperwork. And I really think that that helped me a lot. And he was also making her mad because he kept interrupting, which judges don't really like too much. And it seemed like he had almost like Googled legal terms because he would throw things out, and it sounded like a bad episode of House, you know, like somebody who doesn't know anything medical but is trying to. Um, you know, he'd say stuff about, like, jurisdiction, but it didn't make sense necessarily. So she didn't like him much, and she, she threatened to hold him in contempt for all the interruptions. So um, he made one point that <clears throat> I had sent him a package, so he didn't understand why him sending me a package was a big deal. Well, I had sent him Ray-Ban sunglasses I found in my car that were his and a T-shirt. And the judge said, well, she can send you whatever she wants because you don't have a restraining order against her, but she does have one against you. <laughs> so I got a two-year protective order at that point. Um, we moved, started fresh, states away, and, you know, after a couple years, I think I had two and a half years that I did not even think about dating. And then I was like, you know, I feel ready, but I really believe like we repeat what we don't repair and you should not date quickly after a devastating breakup like this, because you will just gravitate towards the familiar. And I had to come to a complete new me in order to be a healthy partner for someone else and for myself, you know? So I didn't really know how to date. <laughs> I hadn't been on a date in 10 years. 
and now it was all online and I was working full time and single mom. So I was like, Ugh. I kind of had this <laughs> gauge of whether or not it was a good date by if I would rather be at home watching frozen again, it wasn't a good date. <laughs> so that was kind of my, uh, get out of the date quickly. Um, gauge. It works pretty well. So one thing I would say to people who are going to start dating is let people earn your story. It's not something you bring up on the phone call before you meet someone. It's not something you even bring up on a seventh date. Like let them earn it because stories like ours are intense and someone might say they want to know, but they may not be ready. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that you're not ready to date. It just means this is a very intense thing you've gone through and you'll get there with the right person. So I'm just really happy to be in this stage, to be healed up in a healthy relationship and, you know, to have the chance to be a parent and sleep when I want to sleep and feel appreciated. You know, the bruises heal quickly from physical abuse, but that other stuff, it's just these holes that you have to dig out of for a while, you know, but I know my value. I know my worth now. I know how to teach my children what they deserve. And we have to talk about these things because it's not helpful for us or anyone else to pretend they didn't happen. You know, they're, they're, it's just not. And I don't feel anything for him. I, I'm not mad. I'm not, I mean, that's not true, I guess. I don't, I don't think about it. I feel like I'm flatlined. But he doesn't have goodness in him. You know, he doesn't have empathy or kindness. I'll just claim he's broken, but he's really only happy when he's hurting other people. And he's caused so much destruction in his family and every life he's touched in the last decade. So he's not here anymore. Thankfully, um, from what I've heard, I, I, he was seen on the other coast. So I still struggle a little bit here and there with like PTSD stuff, but I do feel like it's getting better and better and better. And I do try to keep um, learning and reading and, you know, I mean, it's definitely been a struggle and a long process, but I hope that anyone who's dating a narcissist hears this for what it is and just runs because it's, you can't love them out of it. It's, it's who they are. It's who they were always going to be, and you deserve so much better. The highs do not outweigh the lows that they'll drag you through. You know, you're worth having a future, and you should not feel pain constantly in your relationship. So, you know, there's a lot more to it, but that's a lot. (laughs) So I think we're good. Well, Emily, I want to thank you for being on the show with me today and sharing your story. You had a lot, I wrote down a bunch of your lines while we were actually, uh, I was listening to you. You had some really good lines that I'm going to be putting on my Instagram. So thank you uh, so much. I mean, you were insightful and, you know, what you went through was, you know, it was, uh, I mean, from the beginning to where it ended up, I could not have imagined that's where it went, you know, because in a way it was just so not innocent at the beginning, but just, 
very um it was a much like a covert. much it was very very <laughs> covert i guess that's the word i'm looking for yeah uh, you couldn't have you could yeah. not have imagined that that's how it was gonna go at least you know because in the notes no. that you gave me like at a certain mm-hmm. point like the, the notes stop at a certain point so i really don't know what happened after that and um mm-hmm. so i mean it was sc- sc- very scary and you're here yeah. and i know your story is going to help uh a lot of people so from the bottom of my heart thank you very much thanks for giving me the chance and for everyone else out there who is listening i hope you have a good night.